Well, it was more than 3,000 years ago at this point that the sweet singer of Israel, a man by the name of King David, as we know him today, penned these precious words. He writes, I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. That last little phrase really arrested my attention early this week. I will magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. According to Scripture, giving thanks both in action and in attitude fittingly enlarges, or we might say it expands, our vision of the one true God who is essentially and eternally good and gracious in His very character, in all of His actions and conduct, and certainly in His covenant-keeping promises to His own prized people. God is worthy of our thanksgiving. It was Pastor John Piper who aptly said that it is indeed a mark of the children of God that they long to magnify the God of their salvation. One of the things that most marks us out from the world is not ingratitude, that's next Sunday, but rather gratitude in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, thanksgiving isn't merely a polite nod of the head, a courtesy, a courteous, a courteous act that we hastily say or write down um, only to move on once we've done our duty of giving thanks, but rather it is the heartbeat of our worship and spiritual obedience to God. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks uh, reminding ourselves of the need to give thanks to the Lord. Well, indeed, in keeping with this timely theme of thanksgiving, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 136. Psalm 136, it's on page 520, if you happen to be using the pew Bibles there in front of you. Here we have recorded for us and then preserved by the Holy Spirit uh, an ancient Jewish classic of a song. Undoubtedly a fan favorite of the community of Israel that was used repeatedly in their corporate worship. A beautifully inspired song of salvation for God's specially chosen people. Particularly, we find here in Psalm 136 a glad hymn of grateful praise for God's hesed. I want to teach you a new Hebrew word this morning. Maybe some of you already know this word, but it is the word hesed. We're going to think deeply uh, and broadly about that beautiful word this morning. This hesed is that never-ending, never-stopping, never-failing love of God for us. That covenant-keeping loyalty and God's steadfast love as it's described, particularly for his Old Testament people, but certainly in Christ for all people that we find in the scriptures. Psalm 136 has been described, and I think rather uh, helpfully so, as a liturgy of thanksgiving. Psalm 136 is a liturgy of thanksgiving. This anonymous anthem meant for public praise is also an antiphonal hymn of jubilant thanksgiving. A couple of interesting words to break down there. Well, we don't know who wrote Psalm 136, nor where it was written, but we certainly have a sense of why it was written and how it was used. That word antiphonal is something we'll actually do in just a few moments together uh, here as we read the text. It's not difficult to stop and imagine God's people gathered together there in Jerusalem, there at the temple, 
as they rehearsed the work and character of God, singing this anthem, this psalm. Remember, all the psalms really are are songs, not just prayers, but they are songs for God's people. They sang this back and forth to each other. That's what the word antiphonal uh, really means. They sang the words of this song back and forth to one another. We're going to do that in just a few moments. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, unquestionably my favorite commentator on the book of Psalms, states that in Jewish tradition, Psalm 136 is actually called the Great Hallel. The Great Hallel, that is the great psalm of praise. Even though it does not use the phrase hallelujah, which we all know it means praise the Lord. It's not found in this particular psalm, but it's called the Great Hallel nonetheless. And it's so called for the way that it rehearses God's goodness in regard to his people, and it encourages them to praise him for his merciful and steadfast love. There is no sweeter reason why we should give God praise than his hesed. Another uh, writer helpfully adds that as the singers of Psalm 136 enunciated the words of this particular psalm, they brought the past powerfully into the present. That's one of my hopes for this psalm for us today, that not only will we nostalgically look back on God's faithfulness to Israel, but we'll remember God's faithfulness to us in Christ. That's one reason why this book, this psalm, is written and recorded for us. The writer said that God who created is creating still. God who delivered is delivering once again. God who sustained his people in the past sustains them faithfully in the present. That's the God we're going to hear about today. Now, as we'll see this morning, perhaps the most obvious and maybe even interesting feature, which is also somewhat unique to this particular psalm, is that frequently repeated and familiar refrain, his steadfast love endures forever. If you've been around a church or our church for any length of time, you've said those words time and again. His steadfast love endures forever. Maybe you note, and we haven't read the text yet, I realize we'll do it in a moment, 26 times in 26 verses, God's hesed, that steadfast love of the Lord is emphasized. It is loudly praised, loudly proclaimed as the true basis for corporate praise of God's people. The word hesed, friends, is employed some 250 times in the Hebrew scriptures. It is translated variously in our modern translations of the Bibles as the Lord's mercy, his kindness, God's Uh, loving goodness to us, his covenant loyalty, or here as the ESV simply renders it, God's steadfast love. The fact is, whatever the word hesed really means, it is important to note that we don't have one singular English term as its equivalent, how it was anciently used. Notice that time after time in this text, look down at the text of Psalm 136, God's covenant community again and again is called to respond to reason after reason for God's praiseworthy conduct and character by affirming corporately, not just alone in private, but publicly and together, the people of God were called to affirm that God's steadfast love endures forever. We need to remind ourselves of that truth. The King James translation puts it, God's mercy endureth forever. 
The New American Standard Bible renders this, his loving kindness is everlasting. Listen, God's tender mercies never expire. God's tender mercies never can be exhausted. And so it is a firm basis for our expression of thanksgiving. Now, before we read these uh, words together antiphonally, again, back and forth together, I want to mention this isn't the only place in the Old Testament where this prominent phrase occurs. In fact, it is found in many different places. Psalm 118 is one such place where this short six-syllable phrase occurs. It's actually ten syllables in our English language, but in the original text, it's only six syllables, which really made it quite punchy for the original Psalms. It's found in Psalm 118, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4, as well as the last verse of Psalm 118. It also occurs several additional times in the works of the chronicler. That is, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34, we find this same phrase. After King David famously brings the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem. And then once more in verse 41, where we read even these words. With them were Haman and Judathan and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 41. This sentiment is also expressed in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13, chapter 7, verse 3, and chapter 7, verse 6 at the dedication of Solomon's temple. I think you get the point. It's a particularly fitting and appropriate instruction of praise. Most instructively for our purposes here in just a moment is its appearance in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10 and following, when the temple in Jerusalem was rebuilt in the days of Ezra after the time of the exile and the Jews, we read in Ezra chapter 3 verse 10, and when the builders, of the, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And notice verse 11, and this is how we're going to use this psalm in a moment. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Well, aren't we privileged members of an even greater house, the house of Christ? And he is the chief cornerstone. And we're going to give thanks to that steadfast love of the Lord, for he is building a mighty people through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, again, notice that God's people celebrated as they were called to mind and affirmed or reaffirmed their faith in and total dependence upon God's unfailing, never-ending covenant love and goodness. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So let's do it right now. Let's take a moment, grab your copy of God's Word, Psalm 136. The words are also going to be on the screen. If you would uh, maybe advance to the next slide for me, Jamie, if you would. I'm going to read the first part of each of these verses, and where it is bolded and italicized, that's your part. So you'll read, for example, 
in unison together after I begin for his steadfast love endures forever. And I'd like for, you to, like for us to do this for this entire psalm. So grab your copy of God's word, look down in the text or up on the screen, and let's hear God's word together, even as we read it antiphonally together this morning. Friends, this is God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for the steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Amen. Praise be to God for his word. Loved ones, understand that Psalm 136 challenges us today to root our thanksgiving in the unmatched, even in the unrivaled goodness and character of God. Root your thanksgiving this year in God himself and his hesed for you in Christ. I want you to notice, firstly, at the beginning of this particular psalm, what we might call even the head of this hymn, verses 1 through 3, and also to tag verse 26, we find a threefold call 
to worship and a summons for God's covenant people to give thanks to their triune God. I find that to be very interesting here. Others have noted, uh, I think rightly so, that the, uh, this hymn seems to flow out of something else that Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verses 12 to 17. Look there in your copy of God's Word. Your, the words will also be on the screen, I believe. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and following says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, and to serve Him with, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, verse 14, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart, his steadfast love, on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Have faith in the Lord and be no longer stubborn. And here's the verse in particular that I think is rooted into Psalm 136. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Whoever wrote Psalm 136 seems to have been ruminating and considering upon the law of Moses, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 10. I want to point out to you four specific names that are given of God because no one name could ever contain our great God in heaven. Amen? Amen. Number one, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. The psalmist here gives us, of course, the name Yahweh, Jehovah God. This is that great personal, even God's covenantal name with the community of Israel. This is the name that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, famously saying, I am who I am. Say to this people, Israel, I am has sent you. Give thanks to Yahweh, church. The psalmist here anchors our praise in the character of our promise-making and promise-keeping God, Yahweh. He is self-existent. He is not dependent on anything outside of himself, and he is sovereign. Therefore, he is worthy of our praise this morning. There's a second name that the psalmist points us to. That's verse 2. Give thanks to the God of gods. This here is the name Elohim. Yahweh and Elohim. This is God's creative name. God's creative name. In the Bible, in fact, it is the very first name we come to encounter of God all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the name Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. There is no God besides our God. 
There is no other God, even though all the nations around Israel sought to give uh, appeasement and praise to a pantheon of other gods, only Elohim, only the one who made the heavens and the stars and the moon, he alone is God. Again, Israel may have been surrounded by nations that had differing gods, um, and they sought, those nations sought to appease their little g gods, but Israel alone was in special covenant relationship with the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. There's a third name, give thanks to the Lord of lords. The third name here is, of course, that name Adonai, Adonai. The point here is that God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is the sovereign Lord over all creation. He is the highest authority of all. He's the master. He's the owner of all things. There is no power or dominion higher or above the Lord our God. Give thanks to Yahweh. Give thanks to Elohim. Give thanks to Adonai. No one name can contain our God. And the, the last name is found in the last verse of Psalm 136. Both, uh, again, sort of a bookend to this particular psalm of, th- of gratitude and thanksgiving. Verse 26 says, give thanks to the God of heaven. In a sense, I think there's an expanding, expansive vision of who our God is. He is the God who is intimately in covenant with us. He's the God who is over all things. He's the God who's the owner of Israel. He's the God who's the owner of all flesh. This final name magnifying the character and goodness of God is the title, the God of heaven. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the only occurrence of that particular title in the book of Psalms at all. But it is not the only time we find God called the God of heaven in the Bible. It is also used in the book of Ezra, chapter 5, verse 12, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 4, even the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 18, as a reference to the reality that God is the, is the one who is over all humanity. He's over all flesh. All the kingdoms of man are subservient to our God. So listen, as Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon once said, when all else is changing within and around, in God and his mercy, no change can be found. We change. The world certainly changes. Brian alluded to the beautiful leaves changing. I love this time of year. We change. The world changes. But praise God, he never changes. His mercy is new every morning, and it's always unfailing. His love for us never diminishes. It never dies. He is always for us. He is always for us in Christ. So church, with God's ancient people, Israel, we can join in this psalm of thanksgiving because our praise is planted in the permanent character and promises of Almighty God. He never wavers. So give thanks to the Lord for He alone is God. And as the psalmist says, He alone is God good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who else knows you like the Lord our God? Who else wants to know you in Christ? Who else is gracious to you? Who else supplies your every need? No one, no one but Jesus, no one but the Father. As Psalm 100 says, we enter his gates with thanksgiving 
and his courts with praise. Therefore, give thanks to him and bless his name for the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Psalm 136 begins by reminding us that giving thanks to God appropriately magnifies his glory. When we fail to give thanks to God, he becomes small and we become large. But when we rightly give thanks to God through Christ in the gospel, he is seen as rightly large and we gain an appropriate smallness. That is why thanksgiving is so important for us as believers in Jesus. So verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. There's a second thing I believe this psalm wants to teach us. And that is that giving thanks is also grounded in the creative and redemptive works of God himself. If the head of the hymn is verses 1 through 3 and the end is verse 26, then the heart of this hymn is found in verses 4 through 25. And here in this antiphonal anthem of adoration and praise, this middle section can be further divided into maybe three portions depending upon your perspective. I want you to notice firstly that the people of Israel were summoned to give thanks to God on account of his powerful works in creation, particularly verses 4 through 9. We'll look at those in just a moment, point us to creation. Not just God's conduct, but the fact that he is the owner and originator of all things gives the basis or framework for God's praise. God has made all things, therefore God alone is worth or worthy of praise for all things. But then after verse 9, there's a shift, and the people are also commanded to give God thanks for his compassionate works of redemption. There are two great themes sandwiched in this psalm. One is creation, the other is redemption. And aren't these two great themes all the way through the scriptures, culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ? But there's, I think, a third, and this is what some people don't quite see in this particular psalm, and that is the people of Israel are also called not to be sort of self-absorbed or selfish in their uh, thankfulness before God, but rather to see that he is the one who is excellent and merciful, displaying kindness to all flesh, not just to Israel. There's a hint of common grace here, and that's found in verse 25. Our mandate to praise and give thanks to the Lord is tied to God's merciful acts of creation and new creation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just pause for a moment, let you catch your breath, or let me catch my breath, and ask you this rhetorical question. When was the last time you simply stopped to thank God for the leaves? You stopped to thank God for the, the fact that the sun is always where you can count on it to be, except when it's hidden by the clouds, of course, but it's always rising in the same spot. That creation itself reminds us that God is constant for us. When was the last time you stopped to say, God, thank you for making a vividly beautiful world? When we don't thank God, how selfish are we for the world that he's made us is so beautiful? See, we are to thank God for his creative power. In fact, the book of the Bible in many places calls us to do this. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. You may want to write these verses down. I'll give you a few references here this morning. 
Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord, by His wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding He, the Lord, established the heavens. By His knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. I've seen all sorts of smart people twist themselves into knots trying to give explanations behind creation. When heaven itself testifies that it is the work of God above. Creation itself exists as a testament and a testimony to God's goodness and His creative power. The biblical prophets, particularly Jeremiah and Isaiah, although others echo this as well, speak about the Lord's praiseworthy character as the author and originator of creation. I'm mindful of Jeremiah 10, verse 12 here, which says, It is He, the Lord, who made the earth by his power. He who established the world by wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Now, I think there's room to debate and dialogue about how all things were made in the sense of time and things like that. I have my own convictions about these things, but who made them is not up for debate. God made them, and we should revel in it. Likewise, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24 says, thus says the Lord your God, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Where were you, O man, when I made the moon and the stars? So observe with me in particular, look back at the text of Psalm 136, how verses 4 through 9 draw our minds back to the very beginning of the Bible echoing the language drawn directly from at least three of the first six days of the creation account in the book of Genesis. Verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders. Genesis 1, the mighty miracles of God making man from the dust of the earth, making the moon and the stars out of nothing, speaking into existence what was not in existence These are mighty miracles. We are witnessing when we look anywhere around us, at each other or at the sky above, the marvelous handiwork of the Lord. Verse 5, to him who by understanding made the heavens. To him, verse 6, who spread out the earth above the waters. Here is very specific language back to Genesis chapter 1. Who made the great lights, Genesis 1 verse 3 the sun to rule over the day, the moon and the stars to rule over the night. Here the psalmist in a shorthanded way simply draws our attention back to God who made all things and who gets the credit for making all things. He's worthy of our praise. For the psalmist, the praiseworthy goodness of God is anchored in the ancient goodness of God's original handiwork in creation. Even the most ardent naturalist friend today can explain or even effectively deny that God's divine fingerprints are all over creation, despite their best efforts. Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims the work of his hands. The fool, Psalm 14, says there is no God. It is the epitome of foolishness to try to claim Uh, that this is some cosmic accident. It is folly. No human being is born an atheist. No human being is born an atheist. 
That is something that is, we're all born depraved, but I don't think anyone is born an atheist. That is a cultivated worldview straight from the pit of hell. Romans 1 verse 19 declares unashamedly, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Maybe the original sin was ingratitude, was thanklessness. That gave birth to unbelief, to believing the devil's lies, but it was perhaps originally merely ingratitude, taking credit for what God had done. Ingratitude then inevitably and always births idolatry because we were made to worship. And in the absence of worshiping the right thing, we will worship something else, even ourselves, or the foolishness of Romans 1, images made after mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Listen, it is the very definition of insanity to look out upon God's handiwork of creation and deny his authorship of it. That's the epitome of foolishness, and it's the cause, uh, and it caused to be guilty of a kind of plagiarism on a cosmic level or proportion. Creation itself, point number one, is cause for thanksgiving. But now the, sh- the psalm shifts its focus, because not only does Psalm 136 call to mind God's acts of creation at the beginning, but it also bears in mind or even rehearses God's imminent faithful acts of saving redemption and rescue for Israel as well. One writer said, it is of utmost importance, particularly in understanding the Bible, that the God of redemption is the very same God of creation. It's not one God who got things started and another God, maybe a good God, who sweeps in and and rescues things. No, it's the very same God. The Lord's covenantal faithfulness for Israel, beginning all the way back in verse 10 of our psalm, is rehearsed in allusion after allusion to their own story of exodus out of Egypt, their own story of deliverance in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Here we see firstly in verses 10 through 15 of our text, Psalm 136, that God himself delivered his chosen people out of the chains of bondage in Egypt. Just take your Bible again. Look back at verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. That, of course, is one of the great and even the culminating plague before the people were let go. He who brought Israel out from among them with an outstretched hand and an outstretched arm To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. All of these are allusions back to God's covenantal faithfulness and his deliverance, even his redemption of the people of Israel. 
God also not only delivered his chosen people, he sustained his people Israel in the wilderness, not just for a year, but for 40 years. Verse 16 again says, to him who led his people through the wilderness. I don't know how God did it all. We read the stories of the manna and the quail, the water coming from rocks, but for 40 years, God sustained millions of people there in the wilderness. That's your God, church. Your God, who does the very same for us in Christ. Finally, the psalmist recalls how God intervened and defeated the enemies, even the kings against and allied against Israel, some 30 different tribes uh, littered throughout the land of Canaan that had, uh, had been promised to Abraham generations earlier, giving that land to the people of Abraham, the Jewish people, as a heritage. In fact, one author helpfully points out that the victory, specifically God's victory over Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, which is mentioned in verses 17 through 20, are mentioned in various places in the Old Testament as a sort of abiding witness to the covenant-keeping power and loyalty of God to his people. They, this author analogized this to the battles, in particular, like the Battle of Gettysburg in the American Civil War, that battle which spelled certain victory for the Union forces. Well, these battles in the Old Testament were the ones that the people of Israel would look back on, and they would be reminded that, yes, God was faithful there. He's going to give us victory ultimately. These victories in particular signaled success and foreshadowed future victory for Israel, and the promised land was sure to be their home and inheritance. Again to Spurgeon. Spurgeon wrote a sermon on this particular psalm and, and actually wrote a poem throughout it, and I'm, I'm quoting some of his language throughout this sermon today. Spurgeon says, Doing wondrous deeds alone, mercy sits upon his throne. High as heaven his wisdom reigns, mercy on the throne remains. Lamps he lit in heaven's heights, for in mercy he delights. See, he lifts his strong right hand, for his mercies steadfast stand. Lo, the Red Sea he divides, for his mercy sure abides. Kings he smote despite their fame, for his mercies still the same. Glory be to the divine conqueror, for his mercy endureth forever. Giant kings before him yield. Mercy ever holds the field. Till they reach the promised land, mercy still the same must stand. For his mercy full and free wins us full felicity. That's good. So again, we've learned two things already. We come to one final point. Firstly, that giving thanks truly does magnify God in his high and holy character. He is the Lord. He is the one who made all things. He is the one who's the Adonai over all. He's the one who's the God of heaven, so he is deserving of praise. But secondly, our thanksgiving today ought to be rooted in our own history. Yes, the people of Israel's history, because Israel brought us the Messiah, but our own history. So when was the last time, brother or sister, you stopped to give thanks to God for your own salvation, your own redemption? When was the last time you pause and say, God, thank you that I, I show up at church because you sought me out 
I'm not here because of myself. That's part of what this psalm calls us to do. And it brings us to our last point this morning. I think it's the point of all thanksgiving. That thanksgiving ultimately points us supremely to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the gospel is the ultimate occasion for giving thanks in any season. Giving thanks according to this psalm, as well as the testimony of all scripture, ultimately points mankind back to the work of Christ at Calvary. Beyond creation stands the fall, but beyond the fall stands a cross. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the psalmist says. And in verse 23, the psalmist reminds us, for it is he who remembered us in our low estate. It is he who rescued us from our foes. It is he who in Christ gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. What lower estate could any man or woman find himself to be in in that state of utter and total corruption and depravity? What need for redemption could there be greater than having a foe like death just nipping at our heels? Jesus Christ is the one who satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. He feeds all people who look to him in faith. And the psalmist concludes by reminding us of his redemption. Again, the work of redemption on the part of God for the people of Israel in the Old Testament beautifully foreshadows the work of the new covenant and the, and the redemption that is found in Christ for his church. Someone put it this way, from the beginning of creation to the climax of redemption, from the first making of the heavens to the final inheritance of the saints, all is seen against the background of God's covenant love. That love is both indestructible because it is covenant love and it is boundless because it endures forever. As you look around at all that he has made and follow through on all that he has done at, the, at every point, you simply must say God's covenant love has done this and he has done it in Christ. By the way, isn't this what Paul himself gets at in the Book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 and following, where Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him, through Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We're here this morning. I don't see any telescopes or microscopes, but I see eyes of faith. See, you might need a telescope in order to see the glory of faraway galaxies. There's a lot of that going around these days with the advancements of technology. It's kind of cool to look at, but it didn't, remind, it didn't tell me anything I didn't know already. God is there. He's the one who made all things. I didn't see any microscopes brought in this morning. You might need a microscope in order to see the diminutive intricacies of human DNA, but I also see God's design in each and every one of you in your faces and the love that's between a man and a woman and a parent and a child. It reminds us of something greater and beyond us. See, what you ultimately need to have this morning in order to see who God is and then to rightly give him thanks are simply eyes of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not a telescope or a microscope, 
but spirit-filled, spirit-anointed eyes to see that God is who he claims to be. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you have spiritual insight this morning, spiritual insight to see what God would have you to see, to do what God would have you to do? Psalm 136 from start to finish is simply a psalm of God's covenant hesed for his people, his unfailing, never faltering, covenant-keeping loyalty and love, which is the foundation of our thanksgiving this season. Let's bow in prayer together. Almighty God and Father, as the psalmist says, I will praise the name of God with a song and magnify him with thanksgiving. Oh Lord, we pray at the conclusion of this message that you would pardon us for the multitude of moments when we have failed to give you thanks. Every one of us, Lord, are guilty in that way. Anytime we do not stop and consciously think about the fact that you're the one who made us, anytime we act in cosmic treason of rebellion and sin against you, we are acting thanklessly. So, Lord, we ask that you would pardon us. And we thank you that you have pardoned us in the gospel. That though it's impossible, it really is impossible for us to always be thankful because we fight remaining sin, we still struggle in this flesh. It is possible, Lord, for us to keep our eyes on Jesus. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would help us even by convicting us, reminding us of our need to give you the thanks that you deserve. Oh Lord, we praise you here at the conclusion of this service for all that you are. As this psalmist has so beautifully stated it, you are the Lord, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the owner of heaven and earth. You are good and you are deserving of thanksgiving for your steadfast love endures forever. This psalm has reminded us not only of your original act of creation, but your ongoing work of new creation of the gospel. May we be a people ready to give you praise for those reasons as well. All of this, Lord, leads us to Calvary. Creation and Calvary is the only solution for and remedy for that crisis of sin. And so we give you the praise as well. Oh Lord, if there is even one here this morning who wants to learn a new song of thanksgiving this season. Oh, may they come to find there's a tune in Christ that will change them forever. Oh, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, draw some sinner home, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.